0: Because of the media, we've had a funny segmentation of what is America, right? So, the image is that um, California is surfers and tech bros, and farmers are a Midwestern white man on a combine. You know, as as Californians or people on the West Coast, we have to continue to tell the stories of what's really happening here and interrogate them for ourselves.
1: I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is Calag Roots Podcast number eleven. Calag Roots unearths histories of important moments in California farming, and we've been doing a lot of digging this spring, which means our podcast feed has been a little quiet. But I promise you we have some really interesting things in the works that have been stretching my thinking. I've been digging into topics like the pivotal moment in the history of the food movement when the term organic was first federally defined. It turns out there was some really intense debate where alternative food movement values were questioned and tested Some of them were pushed forward and others were lost. Also, I've been talking with people who are helping to push way back the timeline of California farming. I've been learning about the long history of land stewardship and cultivation by indigenous Californians, particularly on the Central Coast by members of the Amamutsen Tribal Band. Those two stories will be released this summer. In the meantime, if you haven't heard our other CalAg Roots podcasts that do this kind of deep dive into the history of farming in California... Please check out our website at www.agroots.org. Also, I'm really excited to share with you all that we did a call out this spring for Calagroots Roots Story co-producers who have stories to tell about farming history. That's something I've been thinking about doing for a while now, and we had this really overwhelming positive response. This show, I hope, always creates a space for really underheard voices from rural California. But I wanted to see what would happen if we asked people from those places, from those communities in rural California to pitch us stories and then work with us, with me, hand in hand to produce those stories all the way from start to finish. I got so many good emails and it was really difficult to choose just three folks. Um, It took me a month longer than I thought it was going to, but I finally did choose co-producers. And they are... Jennifer Martinez, Erika ramirez Mayoral, and Hector Calderon. I have the honor of introducing you all to these new voices in the coming months, so stay tuned for that as they produce their stories. But this episode, the one you're about to hear, is part of our Digging Deep series. And for this show, I had the privilege of talking with Nina Ichikawa, who is a real inspiration to me. I think she's one of the most insightful thinkers about food and farming today. And I often find myself mulling over things she said long after our conversation. So without further ado, here's Nina.
0: Okay, hi, Um, my name is Nina Ichikawa. I'm the interim executive director of the Berkeley Food Institute. Uh, I'm also involved in a range of other activities, including uh, I do writing about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the food system. I'm active in California Farmer Justice Collaborative also in a group called Japanese American Women Alumni of UC Berkeley. I'm a fourth generation descendant of an original Northern California farming family in the flower business.
1: Remind me a little bit of your family
0: story. Like when, was it your grandparents that were flower farming? Your parents were not
1: farmers, were they? my
0: great grandparents and my grandparents, yeah. So my great grandparents came from, my great grandfather came from Japan to the Fruitvale District to work as a farm worker in 1895 and moved with his brother and was able to start a business in what is now Richmond in around 1905. And um, he built with his five children, the oldest of which was my grandmother, um, built a uh, Carnation and Rose uh, production and wholesale and later retail operation um, that went until 2017. And actually we're very excited because the business closed in 2017, but there's now a crowdfunding campaign with Planting Justice and United Church of Christ to have a uh, food justice um, re entry worker training program um, in the uh, horticulture industry on my family's former land. And my cousins are part of that partnership, trying to fundraise to convert what used to be our family business into this nonprofit um, training and community hub. But Huh. I mean, my grandmother who grew up in the business, she was born in Richmond and graduated UC Berkeley in 1939 in nutrition and then went back to Japan. Well, went to the land of her parents, which was Japan, um, after college to try to understand more about Japanese food and nutrition. And I think she had a really big influence on me because she was very interesting. I mean, she was a hybrid person. She was really Japanese and American. and um, educated like I said here in the UC system but very interested in food and farming from Asia so um, she had a big influence on me and and helped me see how food and farming are connected because maybe I wasn't exactly the person looking at you know grafting roses but I was the per- I, I was very interested in the food side as, as my grandmother was so.
1: You have been, like, really a foundational longtime advisor for Kelly Roots, right? Like, we've had many, many conversations over the last four years about this project and about specific stories and sort of the way that we produce stories and the way that we find stories. You've been really influential, and I have a lot of, like, running Nina lines in my oh, mind <laughs> when I think of the project. But why? why do you think... Like, why are you interested in some of this history of food and farming? Why is it important to, to be telling these stories, to be digging, doing the work we're doing really together in some ways yeah. to
0: dig up these histories? Yeah, thank you. Well, I really appreciate your curiosity, Ildi, and your, um, I guess I am a history nerd. I always love history, and uh, since, as I mentioned, my family has been in, in California a long time, we have a lot of stories ourselves, and I can only imagine how those are multiplied exponentially by all the different families who have come, and, and um, California being an area of a lot of movement, people moving in and out, and, you know, a, a migratory state, and for many years, I guess it, it it deepens my interest in capturing that history, because I feel it's, it's under-recorded from the beginning all the way up till now, you know, if you compare us to Plymouth Plantation or you know some other heavily recorded parts of our American history I feel that West Coast history is, is under recorded and I've lived on the East Coast, I've lived overseas and I it only, it's only deepened my feeling that we have a lot of stories that are under understood What
1: kind What kind of stories are you really interested in hearing mm-hmm. more of or mm-hmm. telling more of maybe mm-hmm. um, and what are you totally sick of? Like, mm-hmm. I think we've had some interesting moments in our mm-hmm. conversations about like what you're just like no more we have covered that territory and it's no longer doing us it's no longer serving us
0: i mean it's funny you say maybe i was feeling more negative when i met with you before but i really feel like california is so unheard that i right now i'm not feeling like any stories have been overdone i feel that um, california is, is unheard and um, i work a lot nationally and there are certain tropes and narratives from other parts of the country that i feel have been worn to death and they might have a lot of um, industry backing to uh, promote the stories of some of those other crops or farming communities and I just feel that really hasn't been done in California I'm, I am a California nationalist and I just feel that um, we, uh, we we have a lot we have to think not provincially not in terms of our own region or own state but thinking nationally internationally um, the legacy of of the, our bioregion expanding to the Pacific Rim, expanding to the southwest, you know, if you think of it as an L from Washington State, you know, all, well, really down the whole Pacific Rim, Alaska, all the way down to Baja, and then, you know, reaching over into the southwest and Hawaii as well. If 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 you kind of put that together vaguely in your mind as as the natural environment that where we share geologic plates with, um, I think people really don't understand enough about what's happening with the earth here and what's happening with farming. So I have a lot to learn myself.
1: You know, in some ways, California looms so large in the national imagination, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it it was, Mm -hmm. I mean, through sort of Western settlement and conquest, like this mm-hmm. the holy land really like manifest destiny, mm-hmm. the golden edge of the continent. Yeah. It it occupied so much space in kind of national thinking. Mm-hmm. And then with the development of Hollywood and the media industry mm-hmm. in California, like there a lot of images of the US mm-hmm. come from California. Yeah, sure. So is it rural California that's unrepresented in the kind of public imagination? Like what yes. How do we hold those two things Absolutely. at the
0: same time? Yeah, because of the media, we've had a funny segmentation of what is America, right? So, the image is that um, California is surfers and tech bros, and farmers are a Midwestern white man on a combine. You know, as as Californians or people on the West Coast, we have to continue to tell the stories of what's really happening here and interrogate them for ourselves, and 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 not be not. Uh, sort of blindly consume media images of our own next door neighbors that would be a shame because we're we're living here and and um yeah so i think you know um you're right hollywood and silicon valley and other industries have a powerful role in shaping media but in a way that's always left out rural and and farming communities Mm
1: -hmm. and it sounds like maybe you're saying that the reality of what has happened in california farming Mm -hmm. history since its beginning Mm -hmm. it. Has maybe some potential to kind of bust this old McDonald myth, right like even when you look at farming marketing and packaging there's like mm-hmm. the little red barn and the sort of like yeah. the old the old McDonald myth is looms looms really large right like that 's yeah. part of what we think of in this country when we think of farming and yeah. maybe one of the things we can do by upholding california true California histories. Yeah is to show, like, the whole range of other kinds of models and people that have
0: been actually farming. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about me, I've never seen a dramatic movie about the Spanish mission system. I've never seen a dramatic movie, you know, about um, Ohlone farming here in the Bay Area, or about, you know, I've never seen a comedy movie about you know Chinese American chrysanthemum growers i mean there's just so that's why the thought of movies i i sort of i mean i've worked in independent media a lot myself and independent media is about i guess in a way not waiting for mainstream media to figure it out and you just make it yourself
1: so let's talk um let's maybe we can go back to that other question then about like why understanding what's happened in this state could prepare us for things like the farming
0: we're going to need in the future Absolutely. facing climate change. Absolutely. Well, for the f- uh, um, on the first part of that is we should not repeat history. I mean, we I would hope that our work is iterative, and there has been tremendous innovation already in the tw- just let's say just in the twentieth century that I know more about. That I'm sure before there was even more innovation in terms of seed varieties, uh, research into different crops. Um, you know, borrowing from crops in other hot regions of the world, so uh, that have come either through uh, either um, professional university researchers or through so-called uneducated farmers doing it themselves. Either way, there's been a lot of that innovation already, so I think first we have to understand what's been done before we have the bright idea that we will start it from scratch, which seems like a big waste. Also politically, you know, we are in a political environment in California that uh, believes, that understands the science of climate change and has made policy um, responses to it. So that means that there's nothing holding us back from researching, acting, and changing immediately, Uh, unlike some other parts of the country that, you know, may have more political barriers. So I think we have, you know, there's a more open door to uh, work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have such great talent, folks looking at water, seeds, soils, labor, um, you know, so many parts of our changing climate. So, and, you know, again, back to immigrants, we have people coming here who are from, many are even climate refugees or people who are haven't I- experienced the impacts of climate in where they come from, whether it be, you know, Southeast Asia, uh, the Pacific Islands, other places. So, uh, if we are wise, we will listen to them as, you know, uh, people that can warn us about what we may need to get ready for. California agriculture would not be the same without the very advanced agriculture knowledge of people, mainly from Mexico also central america but you know central america more recently but the deep you know the deep complexity of agriculture for millennia in what is now called mexico has absolutely influenced our agriculture and i appreciate that you've started to dig into that and there's still so much we have to know about that uh again under told um you know and and this is every single part of agriculture you know from from uh seed breeding all the way to uh, you know cooking and everything in between so uh yeah yeah innovation uh sometimes costs a lot of money and sometimes it 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 come it just can come with a lot of cultural historical and hands-on knowledge mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i totally agree one of
1: the um sort of deeper dive history stories I'm mm-hmm. working on right now is kind of um, in the vein of Kat An- the Kat Anderson book, Tending the Wild. Oh, Do you know that? Yeah. Really, oh, it's, it's really great. Mm-hmm. It's a thick, it's a tome. But um, it, it kind of pushes back the timeline on and gets into the Native um, American histories uh, related to cultivating the landscape here, right? Like, not n- according to sort of our current definition of farming, mm-hmm. agriculture, Native Californians were not farming. They Kat Anderson um, mm-hmm. calls this term, she sort of terms it proto-agriculture, but they were doing incredible were they cultivation. <laughs> they were cultivating wild plants, right? And they were using fire to manage landscapes uh-huh. as well as a whole range of other stewardship practices that uh-huh. increased the production of berries, increased uh-huh. the production of oaks and of acorns and other kinds of grass seeds and stuff. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, uh-huh. they while they weren't... I guess some, some people say in desert areas, they were actually like physically planting seeds and, and irrigating and mm-hmm. growing crops, but they were definitely cultivating, tending, mm-hmm. stewarding. You know, I, I, I'm i interested mm-hmm. to like sort of push on that and see if anyone's willing to say that was farming. But at the very least, mm-hmm. that stewardship prepared the landscape mm-hmm. in ways, in like really important ways for where where our big super fertile rich farming exists in this state now like for example on the central coast the coastal prairies were all maintained by fire Mm -hmm. and long long ago the dug fir forest would have crept to the edge of the cliff (laughs) if it weren't hacked back burnt back by native people on that landscape and now we have these incredibly fertile coastal farms there
0: right? I mean I find it very dismissive to say proto-agriculture for um, anything that doesn't fit into the Western model of seeds in a square, you know, and water carried by humans, if that's how someone is defining agriculture. I mean, in that definition, um, cattle ranchers today on grazed federal lands are proto-agriculture because they um, they are turning wild plants into protein. So, and I don't think anyone would say that they're not part of American agriculture. So, I think it's a false division between so-called wild and cultivated. It puts a, uh, it gives ourselves a lot of credit, doesn't it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) When Mm -hmm. actually we're constantly in an interplay between, um, an interplay with natural forces that we are either helping or hurting or ignoring or it's ignoring us, you know? So, Mm -hmm. Anyway. That's
1: great. Um, I haven't gotten anybody to say that on tape yet. <laughs> Everybody's
0: very, like, tentative around it, but maybe you'll make it into the story. To me, it's just there's – it's a it's a big gray area. I, I don't see a real harsh, clear line. I mean, we all eat wild foods, and we all eat cultivated foods. If you eat fish, you're eating wild foods. And like I said, you know, graze lands and, um, you know, of course, we have a – there's a Berkeley open-source food project here at Berkeley that's looking at – a more uh, organized way of um, celebrating what's called edible, you know, edible wild plants. And um, they've also taught me this project on, on how fuzzy the lines are between what we consider a weed and what we consider a food and what we consider a pest and what we consider a um, commodity. It's, uh, it's, it's just words. Mhm mhm <laughs> that's interesting
1: yeah i am right there with you and i um and i think that that it'll be really interesting in this story to sort of go way beyond sort of where typical california ag history start which is really like maybe the sort of extensive wheat farming in the state and then but then really like a boom at the gold rush right but obviously there's like tens of thousands of years of history of people on this landscape eating (laughs) eating things and farming is dependent on nature right like that's why it's so hard for a capitalist system to work with it because there are we're always dependent on the sun rising every day in order to like. Have a farming system, so yeah,
0: yeah it is to a. To me, successful agriculture is people being able to eat, like you said, and ideally people being able to eat what's delicious to them, what's nutritious to them, what's easy to prepare, or they know how to prepare, or they find enjoy. Maybe it's not easy, but that they, they you know, fits in with their cultural legacy, and that's successful agriculture. You know, and and it shouldn't starve you either financially or nutritionally you know so there's a lot of different ways to get there Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and 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 i have still so much to learn about how people were eating here in california um you know thousands of years ago Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you know some research has shown that um they were eating pretty well
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it was pretty bountiful landscape i think like words are just words and that has implications on art, the way we interact with ecology, the way we have farming systems, but it also has mm-hmm. cultural, social implications.
0: Well, our use of words indicates our beliefs uh, I- in the same way that exactly words are used to exclude people and to draw limits around people um, in the same way that that happens. And it's all subjective and it changes with time. So that's why I think it's, it's important 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 to not be too clung to it because it absolutely changes with time and and with culture and that's why you know the research for instance that some people are doing here at Berkeley onto ecosystem services is fascinating because it's about changing perhaps the value someone might place on the the humble bee or the humble weed so-called weed you know and and under as we understand what they might what they are doing then our, our value can change and you know another reason I'm very interested in legumes and beans is because I feel in our country you know we see them as c- sometimes as cover crops okay so we have a beginning to have a base understanding that they can nourish the soil and nourish the um, agriculture or cultivated agriculture but we have so little knowledge of what they can do for our diets and we're actually commissioning a new research study on this because um, it's bizarre to me because in other countries with a more longer history of sustainable agriculture than we have in this country it's not seen as that way it's just seen as food you know Um, complementary crops mixes have been developed for over thousands of years into delicious things on your plate Mm -hmm. so that's that's a way to not have waste and that's a reason why beans and rice are so delicious in mexico that's a reason why in, traditionally in Japan, people ate buckwheat and alternated it with buckwheat noodles, alternated it with bowls of rice because they're complementary crops in the field. So we have a long way to go in terms of um, understanding that and, and, and not only understanding but appre- culturally appreciating that um, a- appreciating uh, the, the you know how the natural world, wants to provide us with food <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and kind of getting out of the way almost yeah right yeah. like sort of embracing the ease with which those kinds of complementary mm-hmm. crops can sustain each other and yeah. then we don't have to be dumping bags of you know nitrogen
0: yeah. on them i mean it's hard work too i mean it's ease but it's also hard work to ha- i mean to figure it out that's It's creative work. I mean, I sometimes think, like, who was the first person to figure out how to eat an artichoke? You know, it's crazy. It's (laughs) it's a lot of innovation. And I don't want us to lose that innovation, Mm -hmm. you know, which what, you know, morsel of that plant can I possibly pull out? And how can I season it and boil it for three days and then it tastes delicious or whatever? Mm -hmm. This is far above my pay, pay grade, you know, <laughs> but this is really, that's the type of innovation, cultural innovation that um, might save us.
1: Thanks for listening to the CalAg Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out our other stories at www.agroots.org. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Please subscribe there and leave us a review so others can find us too. This story was produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies, and I'm Ildi Carlisle-Cummins, director of the Caleg Roots Project. Special thanks, of course, to Nina Ichikawa for sitting down with me. Caleg Roots theme music is by Nangdo, And a huge thanks to Caleg Roots funders, including the 11th Hour Project. We couldn't do this work without you.